You're listening to the Desperation Podcast, a generation in desperate pursuit of God. www.desperationonline.com. We're going to continue tonight uh, in our talk of what David started last week and talking about the love of God, and uh, we're going to continue on in that theme. How many of you guys feel like God has placed a call on your life? You have a destiny, God has placed something on you. Just go ahead and raise your hand if you feel like that. I believe, I'm pretty sure that most all of us in this room do feel that way. Uh, That's why you do a program like 24-7. That's why you do a program like The Furnace. That's why you do DI, because you want to set aside time to see what God's called you to, because you feel uh, like God has placed a calling on you. And so I want to talk a little bit tonight about how we can make sure that we fulfill that calling that God's placed on us. And the, the key way that we'll, we'll see that come to fruition, if you want to get, open up your Bibles uh, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, verse 17, I'm going to start at the end of 17, says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long, high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's so great. It was so wonderful there. Uh, all right, here's what we want to talk about. I want to talk about two different ideas. First, from this verse, first of all, we see here Paul writing here. And he's talking about the love of God. And he says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And what Paul's talking about here is experiential love with God. And, uh, and so I think a lot of us can talk God talk and can talk God loves me talk. And it's cute. And we've seen the bumper sticker, you know, God loves you. Jesus loves you. It's, it's kind of the foundation of what I, I'd say the majority of Christians, the majority of congregations in this country would say that, you know, God is love. God loves you. Jesus loves you is the foundation that they've built their, their community around. But I want to talk to us tonight a little bit about the fact that God's love is far more than just a slogan. God's love is far more than just a bumper sticker or something your mom said to you before you went to bed. God's love is an experiential love. And Paul talks here, he says, this love that surpasses knowledge. That surpasses knowledge, meaning it's not just in your head. It's not just something you know as in in your mind and you can wrap your brain around it, but it's something that we can experience. And then it goes on. It goes on, he says this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To experience God's love is to be filled to the measure of all of what God has for you. See, here's the thing. The problem about God's love is, is a lot of times we get, we get into conversations and we talk about it. We can, say the, we can say the slogans. We can say the words. You know, God loves you. Bless you, brother. I love you. You know, I, or, you know the, the, hey, Jesus sure loves you and uh, I'm trying real hard, you know. I mean, we all know that, we all know, we all know that God loves us. It's something that we've said. It's something that you come to prayer meetings and you pray. It's something in worship you sing. It's something that's easy to say. But I think there's a vast majority of us that if we were honest would say, sometimes I have not experienced God's love. God's love is an idea to me, but not an experience. But here's the thing about experiencing God's love is that by experiencing God's love, it is the pathway to the fullness of what God has for you in your life. 
Experiencing God's love is the way that you will fulfill everything that God has for you. If I were to say it in the opposite, in, the, in kind of the negative, it would say to not experience God's love is to not fulfill your destiny. To not experience God's love is to not fulfill what God has called you to do. Now you're saying, oh, Dan, that's so hard because I've been a Christian all my life and you're telling me I need to experience God's love, but I haven't. And if I haven't in the first 20 years, what's going to make this year different? And are you telling me that there's no way that I, can, that I can fulfill God's destiny on my life if I haven't experienced his love? Yes, I am. But here's the good news, friends. It's not hard to experience. God desires for you to experience his love. It's not something that he's hiding from you and saying, oh yeah, you know, this is really for the elite people. This is for those that, you know, fast, 40-day fast, you know, back to back. This is for the people that really go hard. Then I'll let them experience my love. No, here Paul is saying, all of you, may you experience God's love beyond just knowing it, but actually experience it. So I, I believe that there are some key things that, that cause us to f- walk in the, in the fulfillment of what God has for you through experiencing his love tonight. And that's what I want to talk about. And, uh, and so I just welcome you to... I, let's, I want everybody just to stand. I was feeling this during worship. If you could just stand with me real fast. I feel like there's some of us in this room that, that you're saying, kind of in your heart, you would say, I need to experience God. And I'm, kind of, I'm in a dry and weary land and so I just want to pray for you from the beginning, uh, not, not wait till the end. I want to pray for you from the beginning. If that's you, if you say, it, truthfully, I need to experience God's love, I want you to just go ahead and put your hands out. Jesus, I pray for my friends in this room. God, I pray for my own heart. Jesus, I ask that you will reveal yourself to us tonight. God, I pray that you will reveal your love to us. And may it be something that we can tangibly feel and experience, Jesus. God, I pray that you will take it from just head knowledge and, and make it alive in each and every one of us. Meet us here. Amen. Amen. Now, a lot of you guys may have heard David talk about the family that we grew up in. Some of the things that we were able to do and able not to do. For instance, I mean, every family has those things, right? Every family has the things that you can and can't do. My family was strange. Uh, we were unable, like, as a, as a kid, and not even as a kid, like, on into teenage years, I couldn't go to movies. I, we weren't allowed to go to movie theaters, and I could rent movies, but I couldn't go to movies. I don't know why, but anyway, you know, so like we couldn't go to movies. It was one of the rules of our house. You know, most of us had rules of the house, whether it be what you say, what you do, what you don't say. You know, we were, we were a good Nazarene family, so we couldn't go to dances. It's another thing that, you know, you know, if you're Perkins, you don't go to movies, you don't go to dances, you know, because... Dances lead to back massages or something like that. I don't know, but, you know, like, we weren't able to do those things. There, there was a few things that we just couldn't do. But I personally experienced something that most people, I, I guess most of you got to go to movies as a child. Most of you got to go to dances when you are in high school. But there was something else that I didn't get to do that most of you were probably allowed to do. I was not allowed to cry. I don't know if you guys ever cried, but I wasn't allowed to cry as a child. Weird, huh? Yeah, I think so too. So here's the deal. I grew up in a family where my dad was a pastor. Uh, but before he was a pastor, he was a coach. And like, before he was a coach, he was, a, uh, he was like the stud athlete at his high school and college. Like seriously, you know, like the captain of the basketball team, quarterback, 
track team, pitcher on the baseball team, kind of did it all, high school and college. I always felt bad for him, actually. I used to love to go through my dad's old yearbooks and look at him, like, playing all these sports. And then it all of a sudden hit me that he had two very um, small sons. And I was, I always felt bad for him. I was like, man, that's so, that's so sad. Like, here he was, like, Mr. Sports, and then he has these two guys that put them together and they might make one athletic person, you know? Like, it was kind of sad, but he dealt with it all right, I guess. Uh, but so, so my dad was a coach, and he kind of, I think, he kind of always pastored and fathered like a coach. Actually, it's one of the big moments my dad and I had in my life was when he pulled me and we were talking and, and he kind of asked me, hey, Dan, can I be your coach? Uh, and I was a teenager. And from that time on, kind of our relationship really took off. But when I was a kid, uh, I couldn't cry because he was his coach, right? And so most of you probably cried. I never cried. Uh, like, for instance, when I learned to ride a bike, I didn't have training wheels. I had a nice red bike with training wheels, but for some reason I didn't want to use that one. I wanted to use the blue bike without training wheels. And so we lived in a cul-de-sac in Idaho, and uh, not that there's just one, but one of the cul-de-sacs in Idaho. And so uh, not many people live there, but more than just one cul-de-sac. Anyway, uh, and so like I learned to ride a bike by just pedaling and falling and pedaling and falling and pedaling and falling. I don't know why. Maybe that's just the kind of person I am. Uh, it seems that the last 25 years have shown that, <laughs> you know, like, I just, I just go out and I'd ride the bike and I'd fall, and I'd ride the bike and I'd fall, two, pe- you know, you get two, pe- it's not even really a pedal, you like push with one foot and coast and then fall, and uh, anyway, sometimes, you know, like, you fall and sometimes you land gracefully, most of the time I landed gracefully and was fine, it was tough, but occasionally, you know, like, you land on your knee, how many of you ever, like, when you were learning, think back to when you were learning to ride your bike, fell and like gashed your knee open, anybody, yeah? See, so you know what I'm feeling here. Now, see, I, I, I would fall and I'd skin my knee or, you know, and I'd be bleeding. And I was six, seven years old, you know, learning to ride a bike. And, and so I'd, I'd look down and, and I'd see the blood and it'd scare me or something. And, and so, like, you know, my eyes would start to kind of tear up a little bit. And I'd start to kind of want to do something I knew I wasn't supposed to, you know. And I, I wanted to cry. And my dad would come up to me and be like, some of you know this. He'd be like, all right, Dan football smile. And what football smile meant was that in the moment of my crying, you know, pain, blood dripping down, you know, skin hanging off, and in that moment, you know, I I was supposed to look up at him and I'd be like, he'd be like, yeah, come on, football smile. So I looked down and my more blood, come on, come on, let me see your football smile. So I'd be like, yeah! And be like, now pretend like you like it. So I'd pick up my leg that just fell off. And be like, yeah! My leg fell off! I love it! I wasn't allowed to cry, you know? I had, I had to do the football smile. And here's the thing, friends. I think that I love the football smile. I guarantee you, I will teach Dawson the football smile. He will be football smiling his way through his riding a bike. But here's the thing. I think that a lot of times as Christians, as people that follow God, as people that desire to know God, as we go through life, we're excited, we come to a gathering or we come to a program and we're excited for what God's going to do and we have all the emotion and we start going and we start living a little bit and we we fall and we get back up and we go and then we fall and we get back up and we go and and eventually the the joy and the excitement kind of wears down. And I think that sometimes we're guilty of football smiling our way through our walk with God. 
when, when we know that what we're doing is right, you know, we know that what we're doing, we're supposed to be doing it, but there's just nothing in you that wants to do it. I guarantee you, I did not want to celebrate the fact that I was bleeding on the side of the road. There's nothing inside of you that wants to. And so we kind of, we kind of, oh, I'm going to force my way through this worship set, you know, Jesus, I love you, you know, and like, we're like, oh, got to go to prayer meeting again. And so we sit in the back and we're like, I have to be here. I hate being here. Jesus, you know, like, and it's just like, we, we kind of, we, we grit our teeth and we, we press through. And I think sometimes that's noble, sometimes that's great, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that we have to be the kind of people that grit our teeth and bear it and go through life pursuing God. See, I think that what we're talking about in these nights is the key to not having to do that. The secret to a successful Christian walk, better yet, the secret to a successful relationship with God is the truth that God loves you. And like I said, not just the bumper sticker style God loves you, but the experience that God loves you. Knowing it, feeling it, living it day in and day out, that is what will get you through life. That is what will get you through the moments that you really, you don't want to be there. You're, you're, you're feeling down, you're tired, you've fallen off the bike a hundred times. The experience of God's love will be the thing that picks you up. Listen, in that moment, everything in me wanted to cry because my leg fell off, you know. It was, it was my relationship with my father that made it to where I could fake this little football smile and go, because I loved my father. I, I loved what he thought, and he loved me. See, it's the relationship with God that will empower you to not just fake your way through it. You know, I, I had a job where I showed up, and uh, I worked at 24-Hour Fitness as a receptionist. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember my boss. I know, right? I remember my boss, I wore a purple shirt and was a receptionist. That's embarrassing. Anyway, I remember my boss in our training, you know, she'd be like, hey, look, I don't care what your day is like. I don't care what you're going through. When you get here, you're going to be on. You're going to be happy. You're going you're gonna to greet customers. And she said the phrase we've all heard, she said, you're going to fake it till you make it. You're going to fake it till you make it. And I think sometimes we've embraced the fake it till you make it in our Christian walk. I think sometimes we've said, I'm going to fake it. I'm going to put on a pretty face for the world. I'm going to put on a pretty face for my team leader. I'm going to put on a pretty face for my, for my accountability leader. And I'm just going to fake like I had a good week. You get in your group time or you get in the prayer meeting and you tell her, oh, everything's great. Everything's fine. I'm good. But all that's doing is all the junk that's inside of you. It's just masking it. And, and, and as you meet with your groups, as you have your team time, as you keep trying to fake it, you may think in the moment you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but all you're really doing is setting yourself back further and further from being able to experience his love. Knowing God's love is the secret to your success. Here's the problem. I believe that we live in a generation that feels like we're not lovable. I believe it's the lie of the enemy that you are unlovable. I don't know why. I, I, I talk with young people that feel that way, and maybe it's the way that their family, you know, maybe it's the way their parents treated them when they were kids. Maybe it's the way their, their brothers or sisters talk to them. Maybe it's something they've done that they're ashamed of. 
You know, sometimes it's secret sin that they've not told anybody about. And in their mind, they think, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. I think it's the lie of the enemy that you are unlovable. If people really knew at the core who I was, surely they wouldn't love me. Because I'm gross. I, 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 I mess up. I'm not perfect. I got to put on this perfect face. And if they only knew. I think the reason that the enemy lies to us in that way is because loved people are dangerous people. Loved people are dangerous people. Because all of a sudden, you guys know how it is. Like, you, you all have your close group of friends. And you and your friends, you do some dumb stuff together. Like, you do some stuff, sometimes in public, that's really embarrassing. But because your friends think you're cool, you're fine with it, right? Like, you do things that as long as the five people closest to you think it's cool, you're cool with it. And everybody else in the room is like, oh my lord, I can't believe they just did that. And you're like thinking you're the life of the party, right? I mean, there are things that we do because the core people around us like it. We think, great, we're good because we don't care what the other people think. The way you dress, you think it's cool. The clothes people around you think it's cool, so you don't care about. Actually, we kind of developed a whole culture about it, you know, like a whole culture of like, you know, I think it's cool, and my group, we're kind of, we're individuals. It's a group of individuals, which makes them anyway, uh, you know. But like, they, they, it's that individual, individualistic spirit, you know, like I want to be different, and by being different, you're the same. But you know, you kind of do that, and, and you look out, and you don't care what anybody else thinks because you're different. But because the, the people around you like you. Here's the thing. When we, begin to, when we begin to understand that God loves us, all of a sudden, the opinions of everybody around us begin to fade. And all of a sudden, the number one thing that the enemy comes to attack you with, other people's opinions, what you're going to look like, what people are going to think of you, all of a sudden, that begins to fade. Because you don't care. Because you have one that you care what they think. And so all of a sudden, you're dangerous to the enemy. If you know how much God loves you, you're dangerous because you're willing to do things that scared people aren't willing to do. But you're not scared of this world. I believe it is key that we understand this. 1 John 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. We have the capability of loving. We have the we have in us the opportunity to love him because he loved us. That's it. That's why. It is because he loves us first. And that's why we can love him. It's not something that we conjure up within us that, you know, like, oh, I've got to love God. Uh, you know, like, make yourself love God. The very fact that God loves you, as you begin to lock eyes with that, as you begin to understand that, it unlocks the love within you and you're able to love him back. I want to touch on something that Dave talked about a little bit last week. John chapter 15. John 15, in these few chapters in, in John is when Jesus is meeting with his disciples. He's meeting, and, and they're, you know, it's the, it's the last moments before his death. It's the last moments before he is crucified, before they all abandon him, before he's arrested and beaten. And in these moments, he looks at his disciples and and he says this amazing phrase. In John 15, 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, that's how much I love you. As the Father has loved me, that's how much I love you. Here's the interesting thing to me about that phrase. I mean, imagine if Jesus is sitting there and he's like, Hey, John, how much does God love me? 
What's John going to say? Uh, a, a lot. You know, hey, Peter, how much do you think God loves me? Uh, well, he does everything you ever ask. You know, like he's never told you no. You guys hang out 40 days in the desert together. I mean, I think he likes you a lot. Jesus, I mean, imagine if someone were to ask you, how much does God the Father like God the Son? I mean, a lot of us in here, you know, we all know the, the cute little, the five love languages, right? Okay, so let's talk about the five love languages. Let's talk about some of those. What about, what about quality time? What about quality time spent? That's one of the ways that we cultivate love between people, quality time. Hmm, all of eternity past. Creating universes, you know, making planets, hanging out for, from, from this moment all the way back. That's a lot of quality time, I think. There's probably a lot of shared experiences there. A lot of love cultivated. What about, what about the idea of, you know, words of affirmation? Words of affirmation, some of us love words of affirmation. Let's see, not once, but twice, God interrupts human history to verbally look over, rip open the heavens, as you've all heard, and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, that's not happened to me very often. I wonder if Jesus was embarrassed in that moment. You know, like, sometimes parents really show their love for you, and it's kind of embarrassing. Like, was Jesus like, oh, God, you know, why, why now? You know, Moses is here, Elijah, I got some of my disciples. I know you like me. I like you too. Okay, let's go. Okay. You know, like, but, I mean, words of affirmation. God spoke. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm proud of him. I love him. I believe there's a lot of love between God the Father and God the Son. Would you agree? Yeah. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, as much as God loves me, that's how much I love you. Imagine Jesus saying to you, as much as my Father loves me, I love you. How much love is there in that? How much love is there in that? The interesting thing about this moment also is that Jesus says this in the same time frame as he looks at all of them and says, hey, guess what? In a few short hours, you're all going to betray me. So it wasn't like at their highest moment. It wasn't like right after they raised some people from the dead and just got done fasting, Jesus looked at them and said, oh, as much as God loves me, I love you. No, it's in the moment where he knows that they are about to walk through their greatest weakness that he looks at them and says, as much as God loves me, as much love exists between God the Father and God the Son, that's how much love exists in my heart for you. See, a lot of times we think that God really loves us. We feel his pleasure when we're doing really good. Jesus said this to his disciples right before their, mo their greatest moment of weakness. He said, that's how much I love you. He spoke it over them. A few verses later, Jesus gives a little statement to kind of back this up, to kind of back up how much he loves them. In verse 13, he says this. He says, hey, by the way, as I'm about to go die for all of humanity, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. What is he really saying in that moment? Really what he's saying is it is impossible for anyone to love you more than I love you. No greater love is there than this, that a, than a man lay down his life for a friend. He says this in full knowledge that he is on his way. He is walking towards the cross. In that moment, he's saying, I love you. I love you. I believe in you. I'm for you. 
I believe that's a big thing for the disciples as they, as they go on and lead, you know, like kind of they see Jesus crucified and they're, they're weeping and crying and don't understand, you know, and then John, the one that records it, you know, says, oh my goodness, did Jesus not say just a few hours ago that there's no greater love than doing what he's doing right now? And I think there, there might have been in some of the disciples' mind this, this switch where it was like incredible mourning and, and not understanding to, oh, this is the greatest act of love possible. Jesus here is saying how much he cares for us, how much not just cares like feel good, warm fuzzies, but how much he burns with passion. I believe it is so important, friends, for this not just to be uh, something that we say, something that we think we understand, but something that we experience. And it is possible. It is possible. I think the first time that I really grasped this idea, uh, I was a, I think I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school. And uh, I got the opportunity to go on a missions trip to Guatemala. And when I say opportunity, I mean I wanted to have my spring break and my parents made me go. And, uh, and so I went to Guatemala and uh, it was a great trip. We had a good time. We're up in the mountains. I don't know where. It's wonderful. And uh, built a church. Threw up a lot. It's great. And, uh, but the most impactful time was, was on my way home. It was the last night. We were about to be dismissed. Or we were about to fly home. To, to, we were going to Houston and then back up to Oklahoma City. So we're staying in Guatemala City. And, uh, and our leaders come to us and they're like, hey, some rules, some ground rules. Uh, no guys in girls' rooms. Uh, don't be alone. It's groups, stay in groups. That's the same thing. Uh, you know, they kind of laid out the ground rules for us. And they're like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, we're leaving at 4 a.m. And so you 24-7 people are like, 4 a.m., you got to sleep in? And uh, so, so in my brain, though, at the moment, I was like, 4 a.m.? That's so early. I actually believe that there's no reason to be awake during the 4 a.m. hour. I think that there's no reason, there's no reason you should stay up till 4 a.m. And there ain't no reason you should be getting up. From 4 to 5, God sleeps. That's, that's what I think. Uh, so anyway, sorry, Joe, we'll maybe talk. Uh, you know, but, but that was, that's my own personal. So anyway, so I, I got my friends and I was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's stay up all night. Oh yeah, this would be great. Let's stay up all night. So we were like, okay, we're going to do it. Now, I know a lot of you guys have probably tried to stay up all night and no one succeeded, you know. But why, do we, why are we so fascinated with staying up all night when we're in, like, high school? I don't understand it, but for some reason, we're all, my friends and I, every Saturday night, would try to stay up all night. Now, Saturday night is not a good night to try and stay up all night when your dad is a pastor. So every Saturday that we tried this, right around 3 a.m., my dad would walk out. And we'd be like sliding down the stairs in sleeping bags. And he'd walk out, and he had an amazing way to get me to stop. See, it wasn't so much the conversation we had as much as the clothes he was wearing. <laughs> or the lack thereof. In front of all my friends, there I am getting talked down to, not down to, but like talked to by my father in his, you know, clothing. And uh, that was embarrassing for me. 
it didn't take very long before I was like, hey guys, let's go to sleep tonight, you know? And so anyway, but I don't know why the fascination, but here I was in another country, no dad in his underwear, right? And so I'm like, I can do it tonight. We're staying up all night. So, so we get in this little circle and we start talking and you do the stuff you do when you stay up all night, you know? You tell stories. It's like, oh, it's better, better, it's better, but I'm just, ha, ha, ha. You know, awkward silence. Someone has a joke. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And you just go on like that for a long time. And slowly, you start to see them leaving. And there I was, finally, as the last one left. I felt like William Wallace when he saw the Bruce, Isaac the Bruce on the battlefield. I was like, oh, they've betrayed me. They've all left me. You know, and so there I was. And so I was a good, good kid. I, I obeyed the rules. As all my friends went to bed, I was like, okay, I can't stay out here. But man, I am committed to staying up all night. I'm going to do this. So I went into my room. I was, I was committed that night. I opened the door. I shut the door. Darkness. Not very conducive to staying up all night. Bed, soft pillows right there before me. People snoring, you know, like the good snore, not the bad snore. The like breathing that puts you to sleep, you know. And so there I was, but I was like, no way. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go the only place I can go. So I went to the bathroom. <laughs> and in the bathroom, I sat the only place I could sit. And so I was like, all right, what am I going to do? I got to stay up all night. What am I going to do? And so there I was, and I was like, okay, I got to do things. Count the ceiling tiles. One, two, done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, then like, what about the toilet paper? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Backwards, 10, 9, 10, you know, and then you run out of things to do. And so I decided, to, I decided that night to read my Bible to keep me awake because I had to do something. And, uh, and I had my Bible. It was great. And so I, I went to the book in the Bible that I thought most interesting, that I thought most exciting, and that would stimulate my brain to staying awake. I went to Deuteronomy. <laughs> I know, right? And... Uh, I went to Deuteronomy, and I started to read, and I don't know where I started. It must have been chapter 6, because I made it all the way to chapter 7. And, uh, and in that moment, on that night, uh, God, the Lord spoke to me. It's one of those things that, I don't know how many of you guys have experienced, kind of the, the key moments in your life where you feel like God opens up and reveals something to you. In my 14-year-old brain, in my 14-year-old life, this was one of those moments, and it's a verse that likely doesn't have a lot of meaning to a lot of people, but it means a lot to me. And uh, it's Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than any other, for you were the fewest of all. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath he swore to your forefathers. At the time, I was reading the Living Bible, and it said, For the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his special treasure. It said, The Lord did not choose you and lavish his love on you because you were larger or greater than any other. I said, Yes, I, I know. It said, For you were the smallest of all. And I said, oh, I know, God. It said, It is simply because of his great love. And it was in that moment that I began to understand that God was essentially first captain. And every time he picked me, 
You know, like when you split it up, you do kickball, you know, and the recess, and you do fun stuff. And we all have recess still, don't we? Anyway, you know, and you, do, and, and you have first captain and second captain. I always hated being, well, any of it. <laughs> you know, first captain, you have, like the, you have to hurt someone's feelings. And then, and then, like, if you're not a captain, then you get picked last sometimes. Anyway, uh, and so, like, I, it's just kind of this visual in my brain that God was first captain. And he was like, Dan, I'm picking you. You're my special treasure. You know, special treasure to me, it's like when you're a kid. I like to relate things back to when, when I was a kid. You know, you had your toys that you liked, and then your toys that you really liked. So you'd have your friends over, and you'd play with your toys, but there was those secret toys you didn't tell them about, and you kept them in the closet, and like, then all of a sudden, you're like, hey, we should have a water gun fight. Here are my little water guns. And they fill them up, and they start shooting, and then you're all of a sudden, you bust out the Super Soaker 3900, and you're like, Prah! You know, and then they're like, oh, let me have it. And you're like, no, it's mine. I kind of felt like God was saying, Dan, you're my special treasure. I want you all to myself. So that's for me when it really began, began to come alive. And I know some of you have completely different yet similar stories of when the idea that God loves you has, has come alive in you. It's something that can be experienced. It's something that can be experienced. And it is in that experience that you will begin to fulfill God's call in your life. It is in that experience that you'll begin to fulfill God's call in your life. I think that experiencing God's love does three things that empower us, that, that, that get us ready, that, that cause us to be able to walk in God's fullest for us. The first thing that I think it does is it provokes passion within us. I read earlier that we love him because he first loved us. As, for some reason, as people, we like to be liked, yes or no? We like to be liked. I like hanging out with people that like me. As a matter of fact, most of my friends like me. And, uh, and so I like being with people that like People that don't like me, I don't really like spending time with them. It's not like I like to walk in a circle and everybody be making fun of me. And I'm like, oh, more, yes. You know, I, I, it's not like when, you, when you're hanging out with people that don't like you and you, and you, you know, it's not like that really excites my heart. But for some reason, I like to be with people that like me. It's kind of like, you know, in grade school. When uh, you're sitting in class, you get to class first day of school, and, uh, and you don't know anybody. And so you look around. We'll pretend like this didn't happen at orientation for you guys. You look around, and what is the first thing you do? You look for the good-looking people. You know it's true. You know it's true. I don't know why. You look for the people you can flirt with. I, like I said, I'm sure it didn't happen at orientation. So you spot them out, and you don't, you don't know anybody, though. And then around the third day of school, all of a sudden, you get this little note. And on this note, it says, Dear Joe Jackson, do you like me? Check yes, check no, check maybe. Signed, Bobby Eleanor. That's a girl, Bobby with an I. Bobby Eleanor. <laughs> you know? And so, so you start, you read this note, and you're like, huh. Who, who is Bobby Eleanor? I don't know her. So you begin to look around. The guy next to you points her out. So you're like, hmm, me? Yes. Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, and you go out for three days, you don't know what that means, and then you break up and you cry, and then you move on. You know? But for some reason, we like to be liked. And just the mere fact of hearing that somebody else kind of might like us makes our heart kind of might maybe like them. What happens when you begin to grasp how much love God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, the beginning, the end, is madly in love with you? 
What will that do to your heart? The first thing that I think experiencing God's love does is it provokes us to passion. Our hearts cannot help but love him back. When we find God's love for us, we cannot help it. It's not like you don't have to conjure up anything. When you've experienced his love, it causes you to love him back. The second thing that that I think experiencing God's love does is that it, it prepares us. Experiencing God's love will prepare you. And as you begin to walk out this, what I'm talking about tonight, your, your calling, your destiny, whatever you want to call it, as you begin to fulfill the things that God has for you, there's two things that I think are going to come that, that experiencing God's love prepares you for. The first thing that inevitably is going to come is some form of success. Because if you're walking in the destiny that God has for you, there will be some form of success. You will see it. You'll walk in it. Knowing God's love prepares you for that moment because it prepares you to walk in humility and not vanity. In that moment, when success comes, see, there's two options what happens when success comes. Either we can see it, we can feel the success, and all of a sudden you start to think you're pretty awesome and you, you get puffed up and, you know, I'm pretty great. Or you can see the success and you can see how great is God, how great is what he's doing. It protects you. It prepares you for that moment. It's kind of like the, the college athlete. <clears throat> you know, the college athlete that grew up in a poor home and has kind of had nothing his whole life, you know, and then all of a sudden he goes through and he's this massive success in college athletics. And then he gets this, then he goes pro and he gets the huge signing bonus, right? And all of a sudden, everybody in the world is his friend. Everybody likes him. He has millions of dollars, tons of, you know, there's, there's parties to go to. There's people wanting to hang out. There's cars to buy. There's houses to buy. And all of a sudden, success puts you at a crossroads where you have to make some decisions. And a lot of times, I mean, how many times have we seen, you know, that the person that when they hit success, they go and they, they spend all their money. They, they dive into lifestyles that they never intended to. The things that their parents taught them growing up, you know, they don't allow that to continue on because they weren't prepared for that moment. They weren't prepared for the success. Experiencing God's love will allow you to be successful. Experiencing his love will allow it so that God can allow success to come because you'll be ready. Because in that moment, you won't be all about you. Because you'll realize, guess what? I know how much God loves me. And if God loves me that much, that means he loves other people that much. And all of a sudden, the, the anointed moment, you know, as you're leading worship or as you're speaking or as you're leading a small group, all of a sudden, it's not about how anointed you are, but it's about the people. Because God doesn't use you for the sake of you being successful. God uses you for the people that he wants to reach through you. Does that make sense? So as you know his love, you begin to realize how much he loves others. And then it becomes about them, not about you. So it prepares you. It prepares you for success. The other thing that comes along inevitably in life is criticism. People will criticize you. People will speak ill about you and not like you. Not everybody likes everybody. Knowing and experiencing God's love prepares you for the moment where criticism comes. I, uh, when I was in high school, I played basketball for a very, very, very small school. And uh, that's why I was able to play. And I remember the moment I had, a, I had one of our assistant coaches. 
was a, uh, he was about 5'5", five five, and he was a little stocky, and he had no athletic bone in his body, and, uh, but he was an assistant coach because he had two sons. One son took after him, and one son was uh, the star of the basketball team, but both loved to play. And so, you know, his one son that was shorter and stockier, he was what you typically expect. He, he hustled, he worked hard, he learned the game. His other son, you know, six foot two, point guard, star of the team. He had two sons that loved basketball, so he decided that he was going to commit and delve in to learning the game of basketball. And so man knew basketball like few others that I've met. He read books on it. He, he went to seminars on it. He studied the game of basketball. So I remember when I was one practice specifically, uh, we, were, we were having practice and uh, he came up to approach me about, about my shot and the way I was shooting. And he just, he wanted to help me uh, because I didn't, I didn't have enough backspin on my shot. And so he gave me a few pointers. And in that moment, what he was doing was he was coming and he was positively criticizing and critiquing some of the things I was doing in order to help me. But there I was, in my insecurity, what I did is I didn't look at it as, oh man, this guy wants to help me. No, I looked at him and I said, this guy can't play basketball worth a lick. I can shoot way better than he can. And so who is he to tell me what I need to work on? You know, and so because of my insecurity that I wasn't really a good player, I didn't take his criticism. When we're insecure and other people, come to, other people come and criticize us, there's something that wells up within us and a defense mechanism just goes up right away. I believe that as you experience God's love, you become established, as the verse says in Ephesians, rooted and established so that all of a sudden criticism can come. And there's positive criticism. And when positive criticism comes, you're not insecure in that moment. And so you can listen and you can say, oh, okay, maybe you're right, maybe you're not. I'll try it. And, if, and, and then you, you implement these things and people are really trying to help you, you can be more successful. But then there's the other kind of criticism. There's negative criticism. People just talking bad about you. And all of a sudden, it's what I talked about earlier. When people are criticizing you from every angle, it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't ruin you. Because you've locked eyes with the one that you care about. You know what he thinks of you. You've read your, your Bible. He's speaking truth. And so the criticisms that come, the negative things that come, the defense mechanisms don't go up, but rather you feel, you feel compassion for the people that are criticizing you. I believe that as we begin to experience this, it prepares us to be able to handle criticism. And then the last thing, the last thing is that Knowing God's love empowers us. Knowing God's love empowers us to run to God and not away from God. Because inevitably, we're going to mess up. Inevitably, you're not going to be perfect for the rest of your life. I think you can. I think you should strive for it. But most likely, you're going to fail. And it's in that moment that your heart has a choice to make on how you'll respond. Knowing God's love empowers you to run back to him rather than away from him. We all know the story of the prodigal son. He goes out, he takes his inheritance, he goes out, he wastes it. He has a moment where he's failed. And he thinks, what should I do? And, and in that moment, he decides, I can't go home. I can't go back. I need to just get a job, live in the slop. He didn't take the moment to run back to his father. We know the end of the story that when he finally reaches his end, he has no other choice. He comes back. What does his father do? He sees him from a long way off. 
he runs to him and wraps his arms around him. I believe the father would have done that the first time without the pig slop. It empowers you to run to him instead of away from him. I think a great example of this in the Bible is David. You know, David was, you know, if you look in, in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, it says, God sought for a man after his own heart and found David. We know that, that later in, in Acts, when talking of David, it says, a man after God's own heart who fulfilled everything God had for him in his life. We know those verses. We also know David as the man who was an adulterer, as the man who was a murderer, as the man who was a liar, as the man who desecrated the temple, as a man who messed up a lot. But I think you see the heart of David in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David, in his moment, if you look kind of into little instructions before the Psalms, this is David's prayer right after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. David ran back to God. He said, create in me a clean heart. He ran back to God, and because of that, forever David will be known as the man after God's own heart. David had the choice to run away from God, but rather when he messed up, time and time again, as you look at his life, he ran to God, not away from God. As we begin to know that God is not the God that's going to, he's not like the father that's looking to scold you. He's not the boss that looks for every moment that he might yell at you or fire you. He's not angry with you. You have a God that is passionately in love with you. It causes you to be able to run to him, not away from him in your weakness. And scripture says that in our weakness, he is strong. And so as we run to him in our weakness, then he's able to show his strength. It's as we go to him. One thing I love in Jeremiah 3.15, it's another scripture. And in this scripture, it talks about God placing shepherds over the people that were men after his heart. I love that verse because you know what that means? It's not just for David. It's not just for one man in the Bible that's labeled, labeled a man after God's own heart. There are other people that will be people after God's heart. I think that's encouraging. I think that can be us. I think that is us. Those are the kind of people that we want to be. But it takes, it takes spending time with him. It takes getting to know him. It takes asking God, show me your love. Take it from something that I think I know into something that I've experienced. Does that make sense? It is possible. So if you, if you hear me saying anything tonight, what I'm saying is I dare you to try and experience God's love. I dare you because he is so willing to give it. He is so willing to pour his love out all over you. It's what I, I love in, in Deuteronomy, that verse that I read, where it says he lavished his love. I love the word lavish. I think it's such a great descriptive word of how God sees us and he wants to lavish his love over you. It is possible. And through experiencing it, is how you'll reach your destiny. But at the end of the day, it's because it's not about a destiny. It's not about a calling. It's not about what you do. It's about knowing God, knowing his love. And through that, he's able to use you. Go ahead and stand. I'll have uh, just a band, whoever's here, go ahead and come on up. I think for a lot of us, a 
lot of us, the idea of God's love is a cute bumper sticker. For a lot of us, the idea that God loves us is something that we like to say, but at our core, haven't experienced. I just want to pray this Ephesians 3 verse over you, that you may experience that tonight. And so if, if, you're, if you're standing and, and you're saying that, really, at my core, I need to experience God's love. I want you to go ahead and just raise your hands. And I'm not talking about, I mean, all of us naturally want to experience God's love. All of us do, and as we should. But if you're out there and you're saying, God, I de I'm desperate for you. I cannot go on. I've never experienced. I just want you to raise your hands, and I want people to just surround each other and pray for each other. Jesus, I pray that you will pour out your love on us. Father, I ask that this will be a night that we encounter God. Jesus, make it a reality in each and every one of us. Father, we repent, I repent of allowing your love and allowing the cross and what you've done to be cliches, to be slogans. The power that is in the phrase that you love us, God, we want to know it. I pray that each and every one of us in here will be rooted and established in your love. May we have the power together with each other to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is your love, God. May we know this love that surpasses knowledge. Father, take it from knowledge and make it experience. That we may be able to fulfill the measure of all the fullness of God. Jesus, I pray for my friends in this room. May each and every one of us fulfill the measure of all of you. We want to see you. We want to know you. Everything you have for us, God, we ask you will pour it out. We love you, Jesus. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.